Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The Royal Bank of Canada had a report uh, back in October that predicted we're heading for a recession in the first quarter of 2023. And Nanos did a poll that came out in the last few days that says nine in 10 Canadians believe a recession is a possibility in the new year. And there are other experts who say this. Again, I'm not in a position to predict this. My question though is, it seems as though the things that we might do if there was a recession are things we're undoing right now. Last time there was a recession, we lower interest rates. That helped to loosen up money, but we're raising interest rates right now. What happens? All right, we're going to play the hypothetical game and we're going to have a little economics 101 class here. Uh, we're going to bring in Marvin Ryder. Haven't had Marvin on in quite a while from the Nagroot School of Business. Marvin, how are you tonight? I'm just great, thank you. Now, I know that you are not necessarily, I think you are not necessarily walking in lockstep with some of these experts who are saying a recession is a sh- foregone conclusion in the new year, correct? That's right. I, I, I think there's a high probability, but it's not 100%. Even today, T- Governor Tiff Macklem of the Bank of Canada was explaining what he's trying to do, and he's negotiating a really fine line. He's trying to slow the economy, but not to the point that the economy stalls. And so at this point, we are not in a recession. A recession is defined as two consecutive quarters in which the economy shrinks. And if we've had three quarters, this is till September 30th, where our economy grew this year. So even if this was a bad quarter, we'd need two of them in a row. That would get us to March. I don't think this uh, uh, quarter is going to be that bad. Uh, again, we've done studies in which people say, well, you know, I'm going to watch closely about my spending. But they say that every year. Mm. And when push comes That's to true. Trump, people go out and spend. So I think the earliest we can start down a recessionary path would be January, and that would then come to fruition by the end of June, if it happens at all. But there is no doubt we're slowing the economy, but slowing is not the same as a recession. So here is where um, I'd like you to explain something, because let us take the hypothetical. Let's say that all these other uh, these people are right, and the 9 out of 10 Canadians and everyone else, and down the road we do next year have a yep. recession. Last time we had a recession, 2008, the way or one of the main ways that we got out of it was we lowered interest rates and that freed up money so that people would start spending again and that brought us out of it. However, we're right now in a moment when we are raising interest rates to slow money down to help fight inflation. What would we do if we start in three months or four months to see the economy dip into a recession to fight it, do we just lower interest rates again? And if we do, does that, that not just undo everything we've done to try and battle inflation? Yeah, no, I understand the question. Uh, and uh, the short answer is yes, we'd probably cut interest rates again. But let's keep in mind that if I'm right, we are talking four or five months from now. Why Tiff Macklem has been raising those interest rates is to, bring, uh, to cool the economy and bring inflation down. Now, in October, October inflation was 6.9%. To me, that's an eye-watering number. I want to see a number more in the range of 2 to 3%. Now, Wednesday, just 48 hours from now, a little less than 48 hours from now, we're going to hear what the inflation was in November. And I think it will have come down. I don't know how far. Let's say, for the sake of argument, 6.6%. I know the time I'm living in right now, December, look at how the gasoline prices have fallen. I think, guess what, inflation will fall again in December. So if we get this momentum and inflation is going in the right direction, 6.9 to 6.6 to 6.1, and who knows by the time we get to March or April, maybe we'd be down to 45 or 4.7%. Then, if a recession is here, then they might slowly, slightly adjust interest rates downward. What I mean by that would be a quarter percent jump, maybe a half a percent jump down to try to stimulate the economy a little bit. But again, remember, he doesn't want to try to stimulate it a lot. And I think the other question is, what would a recession look like? Normally, why you're trying to stimulate the recession isn't necessarily growth in the economy, but jobs, that people are losing their jobs right, left, and center. At this moment, we have the lowest unemployment rate in Canadian history, and we have nearly a million jobs unfilled. So if there were a few companies that were struggling and did have to lay people off, those people wouldn't stay unemployed for any great length of time because there are lots and lots of other jobs unfilled at the moment. So I don't think he's going to feel the need that he's got to do a lot of stimulation. This is more a case of this is going to be, I think, a shallow recession if it happens. 
not too terribly deep and not too terribly long, he may not have to stimulate very much. But yes, I do think he'd cut the interest rate slightly because he's got that wiggle room in four, five, six months from now. This is a unique time because we've just gone through COVID with all the mm-hmm. supply chain issues and all these other things that don't normally necessarily factor in. Is there a is there a g- guarantee that you can do the same things that you've done in previous recessions and have the same results? Is it a pull a lever and this automatically happens? Or are we looking at a time when we haven't been in something like this before and you're going to have to find new tools? Well, I don't know if you have to find new tools. You do have a limited number of tools that you can play with uh, out there. So you, you have to try to read those tea leaves very carefully. And that's why Tiff Macklem's been walking a really fine line. Now, if I can just roll the tape back to the beginning of this year, when we began to see the interest rates going up, there were people who had predicted a recession by now. Tiff Macklem has more or less got through all of 2022 and avoided that recession. He has slowed the economy, again, no doubt about it, but he's avoided a recession. Now the question is, can this magician do it for another year? And even if he can't, if we do fall into recession, does he have to do all that much? You know, the way we measure growth is in a 0.1 increment. Suppose the first quarter our economy shrank 0.1%, and then another 0.1%. Technically, we're in a recession, but it's so slight and so shallow, I'm not sure he has to do anything. But clearly, if the economy were to shrink by a full percentage point or a half a percentage point two quarters in a row, then he'll be forced to act. And, and his, really his only tool to play with, the only tool available to him, are those inflation, or excuse me, are those interest rates as it goes. So, you know, he is walking a new road for sure, and he's looking at some new circumstances. Uh, The other little challenge, of course, Scott, is that he's not alone on this road. We're trying to avoid a recession, but so is the Federal Reserve Board in the United States. So is the European Central Bank in Europe. So, you know, we're going to watch and see what they do, and if they do anything clever, we'll probably follow suit. But other than that, I think, again, this is kind of a hold on and just hope for a relatively quiet ride. Our last thing then, you're, as I say, you seem kind of optimistic that yep. we are going to be okay. There are a lot of people, that, there are stories that people are saving a lot of money right now, that there are billions of dollars not being moved around in the Canadian economy because people are trying to stock up. Is that a wise thing anyway? Is that a wise thing to do no matter whether there's a, 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 yep. a, a recession potentially coming or not? Or do we not want people to do that because we need that money flowing in the economy? Well, I think it's the kind of spending we're talking about here, Scott. Look, anything that you're doing to bring your debt levels down is great. Canada's actually running record debt. There was a story that the Canadian government's debt is $1.1 trillion, but the debt of you and I is $2.3 trillion. Most of us are in a hawk up to our eyeballs. So if you can bring your debt levels down, that's going to give you degrees of freedom depending upon what the economy does. So I'm not worried about that kind of big ticket spending. What I am more worried about is the little ticket spending. In other words, you've decided to cut out your Tim Hortons coffee or you're not going to go to lunch with the other people at your work site. And that's what could really cause the problems in our economy. And so I think as we go forward, it'll be interesting to see, not at this time, I think Christmas will be okay, but as we get into January and February and you get those bills from Christmas, are people going to create the recession themselves by going into a deep freeze, or will they have enough confidence to spend on a day-to-day basis more or less the same that they did before, and then they're not going to be the trigger point. But this is one of those cases, I think, if we keep talking about it and keep convincing ourselves that one's around yep. the corner, we'll make it happen whether we need to or not. That is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always appreciate the time. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada's healthcare system. It has been what people have been talking about through the whole COVID situation. Essentially, the how Canada's healthcare system has been exposed. That we used to like brag to our neighbors in the states about our healthcare. Ours is so much better than yours. Well, now there are an awful lot of questions about our system and the failings and the fault lines and the issues. For close to 30 years now, the Fraser Institute has looked at wait times. They do this every year. They look at wait times for how long people are having to wait to get in to see physicians or get work done. 
And um, what is amazing, their numbers are out. They came out in the last couple of days and they're up from about two weeks more today to wait to see a doctor or to get in to get something done. It's about two weeks more today than it was last year. But here's this truly staggering thing. Over the last 30 years, so now compared to 1993, back in 93, it was 9.3 weeks on average to get in to get what you needed done. Now it is 27.4 weeks. It is almost three times as much time. With all the money we're paying into healthcare, all the extra money being spent on healthcare in the meantime, billions of dollars a year that we pour into healthcare, it has gone the complete opposite direction. Uh, Nadim Eshmael is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. He's an expert in health policy. Joins us now. Nadim, thank you for this. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me on the show. When I saw these numbers, I got to be honest, I, was, I, I, I expected that the weights would have gone up because that's all we've heard about. But I was blown away when I saw that the wait is as long as it is now compared to what it used to be. It's really quite remarkable, the growth. And, and even if we look back pre-COVID, this is not a new problem. It's just simply been exacerbated by the governmental responses to COVID and, and what happened in the healthcare system. In 2019, the wait time was 20.9 weeks relative to 1993's 9.3. So we were still over double prior to the COVID pandemic. We're now reaching triple the case is no different in Ontario, where the numbers have increased substantially. All of this points to a healthcare system that is fundamentally broken. This is not a healthcare system that's lacking for money. Quite the opposite, it's a very well funded healthcare system. It just isn't able to deliver the timely access to healthcare services that Canadians are already paying for. Okay, so let's go there first, because every single time that there is someone pointing out the problem with our healthcare system, the default reaction is governments have to spend more on healthcare. We need more money put into healthcare. And yet, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but what we're spending now compared to 1993, I would guarantee is monumentally more money. And yet we have far worse results this way. Why? It's a natural human reaction, of course. We see the, the broken down house, we see the broken down car, and we think if only I put more money in, I'll get something better. The sad reality in Canadian healthcare is, is it works almost opposite. The more money we're putting into the healthcare system, the less we seem to get in return. We, we, as you point out rightly, we have years of, of healthcare spending increases that have largely been unsustainable relative to the growth in governmental budgets. And the reason is, I think, quite clear. When we look around the developed world and we ask the question, who's doing healthcare better? What we find is the Canadian healthcare system is among the most expensive in the developed world and yet has some of the worst access to physicians and medical technologies and some of the longest waiting lists. Other countries like Switzerland, Sweden, Germany, uh, Australia, the Netherlands are doing healthcare differently. They have a larger role for the private sector. They have a role for cost sharing or uh, a fee at the access to uh, the point of access to the healthcare system to encourage more informed decision making. They have private parallel options outside of the public scheme. And as a result of all these policies, policies that we're told will destroy Medicare, they have better universal access healthcare systems to show for it. But when you mention the word private, even as you just drop it into your comment there, there are people in this country who will need health care if they hear someone say that because they will blow their aorta. I mean, the idea that we might ever bring in any part of privacy or private sector health care causes some people to lose their minds. I, and I think they've been fed a lie for too many years. For years and years and years, Canadians have been force-fed this false dichotomy. There's the Canadian, uh, there's the Canadian method predominated by government, and it's universal, and there's, Amer there's the American model, which is private and non-universal, and, and there are no other ways of doing healthcare. And, and so, therefore, any private immediately means less universality, which is nonsense. The simple reality is, that, look at a country like Switzerland, where there are private hospitals competing to supply universally accessible healthcare, where patients have cost-sharing and user fees, where you're not bound to the public system. You can choose to seek care privately if you wish, and there are no waiting lists. There are no waiting lists in, in Switzerland, and they have world-class outcomes from the healthcare process. Better access to care, better quality care, in part because they have a larger role for the private sector in the delivery and financing of healthcare. Is that because those who then choose to go the private sector get out of the line in the public one, so the people waiting in the public for public healthcare can move up the line faster? 
In part, that's the explanation when we look at countries like Sweden and Switzerland, but it's also about the competition. If no one out there is delivering truly patient-focused care in a timely fashion, then what incentive is there for the government system to provide it? In the Canadian monopolistic setting, there's no alternative. You will accept what you will receive from the governmental system, whereas in these other countries, you can choose to get better, and that creates a tension for the universal system to ensure that it also delivers better for everyone, regardless of ability to pay. But what about the, so the, the common line that is always, that I always hear used when this comes up is, if you have a private system or even a private sector system, you will draw all the best doctors and nurses to that because they'll pay better and therefore the public system will be a crappy alternative and nobody will want to use it and it'll just be for the poor people. That immediately presupposes, of course, that the public system is is seen as a system nobody wants to be a part of, which is the opposite of what the experience of countries like Australia is, where it is actually quite a source of, of pride and professional pride to be a part of the public scheme and in the public hospitals, because that's where the most complex healthcare is being delivered. That's where the really complex patients are. That's where the really sophisticated healthcare occurs. Largely, the, the private sector is delivering what you might consider assembly line medicine, steady, straightforward procedures like cataracts, joint replacements, things that can come out of the large public hospitals because they have predictable costs and predictable outcomes. So things that can just like shorten the lines, get things cleared out. It's like a clearinghouse and, and then we can get those out of, the, out of the way and done. Absolutely. And there's nothing saying that physicians have to choose one or the other. Why not do what Sweden does, what Switzerland does, what so many countries around the developed world do and say to physicians, you can have your private practice that may be lucrative, that may be straightforward, but you can also maintain your public practice where you get to do some of the more complex, more sophisticated healthcare work that you're interested in. In this way, we keep the best physicians in both sectors and allow them to use their spare time to mm. treat patients in the private sector. We know physicians don't get as much operating time as they would like in Canada. Why don't we take advantage of some of that time that we have available that we're not giving them in the public system today? One thing, and I wish we had a lot more time on this, uh, one thing that I'm reading in this report that I was very surprised by, uh, you list it by province of who has the longest wait period. Uh, so Prince Edward Island has the longest, 64.7 weeks. The shortest wait provincially, and I think people here are going to fall out of their chair because they're not going to believe it, but here it is, Ontario at 20.3 weeks. Our province is actually, by this measure, doing the best it, it, it's really, and, and of course, it sort of it sort of points to the to the reality that we don't have equal access to healthcare in Canada. It is certainly better depending on where you live. And Ontario has traditionally been a better performer than the other provinces when it comes to waiting times. This being said, it's still ten weeks. That's almost the three month stretch that patients who need medically necessary care are not able to receive it, and that is an embarrassment in a nation like Canada. Uh, and your point is well taken, but if living here. You would, I would think, I think most people would assume what we hear all the time. I would have assumed Ontario was the worst because people, maybe it's just we're screaming loudest, maybe it's because we're here. But the idea that Ontario is actually the best flies right in the face of the common narrative. I think it, I don't know that it flies in the face of the common narrative. I think everyone is struggling across the country in every province, some certainly more than others. And, and it all points back to the reality that. Waiting is not a benign inconvenience. There are very real medical consequences to waiting, in addition to pain and suffering, mental anguish, lost productivity at work and leisure, strained personal relationships, economic impacts on the individual and the family. While these people are waiting, they are deteriorating. They may have worse outcomes from the healthcare process. They may suffer the ultimate consequence and die while they waited for healthcare. These are not benign wait times. These are very real waits. And even 10 weeks is a very serious waiting time, especially when we consider that's among the longest waiting times in the developed world for healthcare. There are many other nations that do so much better in terms of delivering timely access to medically necessary services, regardless of ability to pay. Uh, the uh, the headline on the piece is "Waiting Your Turn: Wait Times for Healthcare in Canada 2022 Report." If people want to go online, we don't have enough time to go through everything. There's a ton of fascinating numbers in there and fascinating information about what we've been talking about. Uh, Nadim Eshmael, a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you again. Uh, it, it is, as I say, it is well worth reading. Now, I know every time we talk to somebody from the Fraser Institute, people say, oh, that's just a right-wing organization. All we're talking about here is straight numbers. This is not anybody's opinion that I can see. So you can go and take a look at this and decide if there's anything here that is somehow 
not just straight up documented statistics. They're talking to doctors about wait times and they're finding through hospitals who's waiting. And we are seeing, and look, if nothing else, if you've had to use the medical system at all in the last 30 years, probably you have at some point, then and now, you ask yourself, is it working well? Is it working better than it did 30 years ago? If there is a single person out there with their hand up who would say, oh, no, this report's crap. Healthcare system, I mean, you just fly through that system right now. There are moments. If you come in with a traumatic injury or a life-threatening, yes, you will directly, you will, we still have a system that will take you through and get you to the front of the line and give you terrific service and terrific care. That's not the question. It's all these other things that you are going to have to deal with that are lingering that you get put off and and that's what everyone's pointing to. Anyway, go take a look at it. Uh, Once again, the headline, waiting your turn, wait times for healthcare in Canada, 2022 report. It came out December 8th. Uh, Take a look at it. It is well worth your time. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is Monday, which means in the second hour of our show, we like to bring in our friend Don Robertson, who owns and operates the Dundas Real McCoys. He is the guy behind Calm Choice Realty. He is, um, really, he, he is the guy that, uh, that makes Dundas operate. I mean, that's the simplest way to whittle it down and just reduce the resume to one line. It, Dundas ceases to exist without all the stuff Don Robertson does. Or something like that, right? Isn't have I got it right? Ah, uh, that's pretty well the way I wrote it for you. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, Don uh, does a so lot of Don does a lot of stuff in, in Dundas, and he'll he'll tell you he doesn't, but he does. And so, um, and so we appreciate you being here every Monday night. That's great. No, it's, uh, it's Christmas. It's uh, the holiday season. It's, there's snow on the ground. It's hockey time, and it's a fun time. So it's good. Uh, let's get into some of this stuff because um, we saw on the weekend that uh, Croatia and Morocco have now made it through to the semifinals of the World Cup. Both of those teams were in Canada's pool, along with the team that was supposed to be the second best team in the world with Belgium. Uh, Canada did not win a game in the World Cup, and a lot of people, Don, were disappointed by that. Does this change the narrative when two of the four teams that weren't even supposed to be the two best ones get to the semifinals? Does this change what we think of what Canada did? Uh, it depends on what side of the argument you want to be on. I mean, you could certainly now say, uh, based on this tournament, four, uh, two of the top four teams in the world um, are there, and Canada showed very well or quite respectfully against those which should move Canada's rankings up. Um, or you could look at it and say it was really fun to be in the tournament after, you know, 176 years of absence. And by the way, we scored a goal. Yippee. So I don't know what it does. It, uh, if you're trying to uh, justify um, our, our um, significance in world soccer, I would say, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. You know, I mean, the fact that they didn't beat uh, two of the final four teams, um, you can equate that into the fact that if they'd have been in the right division, they m- might have won a couple games. I don't think they'd be in the final four, but they potentially in the right division could have won a couple games based on the outcome. Uh, see, that's the, that's the thing to me. I, I mean, I never expected that Canada was going to go to the semifinals or anything like that, but... There were, as I say, there were people who were really disappointed, especially against Morocco, because when, when the draw was made, everyone thought, oh, great, Morocco is going to be the soft touch here. Uh, clearly not the case. Um, and, uh, Don, I, I think I really believe that how people are going to perceive this Canadian team changes, particularly, imagine if those two teams end up meeting in the final and they were both coming out of the same group. And Canada lost to both. I mean, how do you possibly not say, well, that was rotten luck? Well, yeah, you can say it was rotten luck, but you can also, again, be rather proud of how it's unfolded and say, yeah, we didn't do well. We played two of the best top four teams in the tournament. What do you want, blood? It's our first time. When you've played, in, in sports over the years, when you've played against a team 
and lost in a playoff round, do you hope that that team goes on to win because it makes your guys look better, or do you hope they don't because you're sour at them because they beat you? Uh, well, I'm kind of in between. If, if I really dislike the team, I don't want them to do well. But traditionally, that's not my um, case. And yes, if you happen to get beat, in a round of the playoffs by the team that goes on and wins the championship, you can feel a little better about yourself. And, you know, especially in the Allen Cup tournament, uh, forget which one we were at. We were the only team to beat the champions, but we didn't make it to the final. So, I mean, what's that make you? It, you know, if you're going to sit around and have a beer, I guess it sounds like more fun, but really it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, no, I, I, going back to the World Cup, I, I really, I, you know, there were people who were questioning John Herdman, and, and I think with, in certain ways, parts of, you know, Herdman's comments against Croatia, Croatia made a big deal about them and said they were really motivating, and, you know, we, they, we really took those to heart and all, and I was like, well, clearly it wasn't just some comments from John Herdman that motivated you, because you've beat out some other really, really good teams to get to where you are right now. Uh, you know, I think that puts a lie to that whole John Herdman comment fiasco. Uh, if Croatia had gone on to lose the next game, maybe you say, all right, well, they found their legs just because they were motivated by Herdman's comments. I, I don't, I, I, I no longer think there is, I no longer assume there's anything to that whatsoever. That was a, a lot of smoke and no fire. Um, and, you know, and the fact is that they, they played, they were the better team against Croatia for the first half hour, basically. Croatia eventually broke them down, but I think Canada, especially when you look at what they're doing now, Canada held up very nicely for a half an hour. They've got to do better and build the team. And with Morocco, they did, you know, they lost, what, 2-1? to one? Um, Against a team that's yeah. in the semifinals and very well could go to the finals? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not ruling out Morocco beating France. The way they play, very defensively and everything, I think it's very possible. I, I, I think that this has made Canada's soccer men's soccer team look much, much, much better. Yeah, I don't know how you'd be critical of a coach that got you somewhere that you really never. We haven't been in in decades. That's, I mean, that's the nature of sports. I mean, I tell goalies that you know they have a bad game, they let in a bad goal, and. I just like, well, you know, you chose this position. You can be the superstar or you can have a bad game. You chose it. I didn't. I'm really sympathetic sometimes that way, especially if I'm not happy about it. But (laughs) that's the truth. And if you're going to coach, you know, good coaches, when you're on a winning streak, say, this has got nothing to do with me. And inherently they feel some reason that they have to take the blame. Um, I'm kind of in between. I mean, if you're telling guys to do very similar things every night, some nights they win and some nights they lose, it doesn't have much to do with the coach. It's got a lot to do with execution and will and determination, but the coach always wears it. So to, to kind of dump on Herdman is, is just kind of foolhardy, really. How, how many, you know, how many co- Well, how many coaches are there who have been amazing coaches and you look and you go, okay, but you also had so-and-so in net bailing out. I mean, look, uh, Pat Quinn was an amazing coach. Uh, there's no question Pat Quinn was a great coach from Hamilton. Yeah. When he was coaching the Maple Leafs and he had Ed Belfour playing for him, you know, Ed Belfour makes you look like a good coach when he's at his best. And when Ed Belfour wasn't at his best and Quinn started to lose, well, he didn't have any goaltending. It's I'm not saying Pat Quinn's success was only based on goaltending, but it sure helps when you've got someone back there making bailing out some mistakes oh. and making what you do look good. Absolutely. I mean, I remember Jacques Demers in his French accent saying, the better Patrick Waugh play, the better I coach. Right. Which means if he stands on his head, I'm a better coach. And he was making fun of his position, but it's an absolute fact. The, the, the better the goaltender, you don't have to be as good a coach. And we've proven that in Dundas winning championships with Mike Mole. <laughs> Right, like he he covers up a lot of ground for a lot of people, defensemen and forwards not picking up their checks and bad coaching, mostly bad coaching by me, not Bernie. Yeah, but if you, I mean, look, if 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 Canada's soccer team uh, against, for example, against Belgium, they should have had a few goals. No question, they should have. They score a couple of goals and they win that game. 
And, you know, if they catch a break or two against Morocco, even though Morocco was an excellent team, I mean, how different, how different is, is this whole thing portrayed? And beyond that, uh, going back to where we started this, if you've got two of the last four teams and they both came out of your division, out of your pool, uh, out of your group, I guess is the, uh, the official World Cup term, um, boy, I, I, I just, I, I look at this and I think, how, how do you do anything but tip your hat to the Canadian team that had left Qatar 0-3, one of only two teams that didn't get a point? And you look, and at that point, that, Don, that was the point. Was only them and the hosts, only them and Qatar, and Qatar was, quite frankly, awful. And so you go, really? Us and Qatar are the only teams not even to get a draw? I mean, that's kind of embarrassing. Well, then you look at what's happened out of your pool and you go, well, maybe it's not nearly so embarrassing. It, it, it's actually, when you look at it, we're, we put us in, as you said, any different group almost. And you want to know something Canada might have got through. I was going to say, that's why I said they may have advanced. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, uh, it, it's a very different, I think it's a very different perspective on Canada today than it was four days ago. I really do. Isn't that funny, though? Um, and I will correct you on one thing, and I like to correct you when I get an opportunity because they're, <laughs> like, years apart. Good, do it. Um, you said only two teams left Qatar with no points. I beg the difference. I think it was only one team left. Well, okay, fair enough. One, one, one left the tournament. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Qatar, the Qatari leadership may have told the Qatar team, you've got yeah. to leave now because you didn't yeah. get a point. You humiliated us. Who knows? But yes, you are correct. But no, I, that was, it, it's tough because, you know, it, it's very similar right now to the division. If we're, you know, we talk hockey a lot on the show. When the, the division the Leafs are in right now, when you've got Tampa Bay, you've got Boston. Last year you had Florida. Uh, the one year you had Montreal when Carey Price was was carrying the water. I mean, you're there are a lot of divisions in the league. There's a well, there's a number of divisions in the league where I would bet money that we would not at this point be talking about the fact that the Leafs haven't won a playoff series in 18 years. I'm not saying they would have won a cup, but I would put all the money I have on the fact that. Did they, if they didn't have to play Boston or didn't have to play Tampa Bay, teams that generally go on to either be in the cup finals or win the cup, if that was not their first round opponent every year, I would bet you all the money I have they would have won a playoff round recently. But you end up I, in a bad draw. Yeah. And... No, the- there it is. Don, uh, there was a... Rather hilarious post-game press conference uh, the other night after the Calgary Flames played the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Calgary's coach, Daryl Sutter, was, you know, a little ticked off by some of the penalties that were called against his team. They got one called against them in overtime, and the Leafs got a power play. And Daryl Sutter, after the game, said, you know, that's one thing I learned a long time ago when you're in Chicago all those years, he used to play there, and you come into Toronto, you know what goes on. I won't say nothing more. That's what he said. Uh, you know, essentially, you know, the refs, when you come to Toronto, the refs are in the Leafs' pocket. They're going to, you know, they're going to give the Leafs all the breaks. And it immediately led to a bunch of people doing a little bit of research and discovering that over the past five years, the Leafs are 28th out of 32 in power play opportunities. They never get calls for them. It, it was last year, I think, or the year before that it was being pointed out that Austin Matthews had drawn something like eight penalties in the entire season and other guys had, you know, 60 and 70. And Okay, so my question is this. You've been a ref, you've been a coach. And we may have talked about this before, but how is it that certain teams get called? And I'm not suggesting that refs are being bought. That's not what I mean. But I think subconsciously there's something going on. How do some teams get calls and some teams not get calls? Well, I don't, I, I don't know if teams do get calls and don't get calls. I think it's perceived that they do. No, but in this case, uh, there are numbers that show the Leafs are among the very least year after year after year. They are always among the, they are always among the teams that get the least numbers of power plays, least penalties called on their opposition. That's a, that's well, a number. It might be. I mean, yeah, stats are always important. 
how difficult are the Leafs to play against? If you're not hard to play against, you're not going to have as many power play opportunities. I mean, that's just the way it is. Like, if you're a hard team to play against, and one of the ways you have to stop that team is through an infraction to slow them down or to make your point. So, I, I, you know, the numbers can say that, but, I mean, I still think it speaks to the fact that sometimes Toronto are, are just not very hard to play against, so you don't get as many penalty opportunities. Now, excuse me, I know what you're saying, and I will do a little bit to answer the question, but um, I think inherently that officials have more respect for some organizations than others. It comes from, you know, if your team is behind and you let your players act like a bunch of uh, wing nuts and flash and hack and kind of wreck it. Well, it's hard for the officials to have a lot of respect for you. So, the teams that are that have more respect probably end up getting the benefit of the doubt, if in fact there is a benefit of the doubt. Um, as you can see, I'm not saying that anybody would do that, but you know, I mean, when I refereed, if if the coach was just constantly a pain in the neck, well, I treat people like they treat me. And uh, now, sadly, we had our, our staff party Saturday night, so I didn't see. Sutter's comments, but he is always entertaining. He always is great for the media because he'll say what he thinks and he'll trap you like he trapped them. That's all I'm saying. When you come in with Chicago, we knew what we were getting. What's that imply? I, it's, it's absolutely clear what he's implying, which is that the refs give the Leafs breaks. And yet, I, I wonder, the numbers would clearly say that's not true one way or another. Whether it is or isn't, whether those numbers are lying, it would clearly suggest that's not true. But I do wonder, since, you know, many of the officials come from this area, many of the officials know that Toronto is one of the hotbeds in the biggest markets in hockey. I, I always wonder if there's an, a subconscious and unconscious bias, not for that team, but against it because they don't want to be seen like they are playing favorites. And so we almost work the other way that in certain teams, in certain markets, we don't want to look like we're playing favorites. So let's just be even harder on them. Well, I, I can tell you when I refereed, uh, well, would not be senior, but when the Rock and Real McCoys were in, in the intermediate before I was in the management business, I would get them, I'd get them at home, and I'd get them on the road, and everybody knew I was a local guy, and I worked pretty hard to make sure nobody could call me a homer. Um, so I don't discount that theory one bit. I would suggest, though, and I haven't looked at it because I don't follow as closely as I used to, because there used to be guys in the league I'd, I'd refereed with. But um, I, I would say 70% of the referees in the NHL used to come through the OHA. Not convinced. Well, I, no convincing. That's just not the case now. There's all kinds of Americans, and uh, like it, they just come from all over the place because there is more hockey all over the place. Yeah, and I, you know what? The one thing I don't have in front of me, and as we're talking, I realize that I should. Um, I wonder what the Montreal Canadiens, for example, what their numbers are, because they would be another one of these teams that is in the, you know, a hockey hotbed. And I, you wonder if the same theory might apply, that I don't want to look like I'm giving that team the benefit of the doubt. I wonder where Montreal is on that list. And I don't have it in front of me, so I can't find yeah, out exactly what fair. it is but it would be if if they were if Montreal was in the same position Toronto is somewhere around there where they're near the bottom I would give some real credence to that then that we just don't want to look like we're giving favor to the teams just because they're the big markets and everyone's then going to say well look the league's the league just wants that team to win I mean leaving aside the fact that the Leafs haven't won a playoff series since the puck was made of cow dung and, you know, like, it's not like any favoritism is being shown because they're just, and if it is, it's, it's favoritism that's not doing much. It's not doing, not doing anything for them at all. Uh, I think Sportsnet want uh, Toronto to win. Uh, they want all the Canadian teams to win because they're, you know, it's very expensive not having 
that team do well. Um, but it, it's, I don't, you know, what's interesting. The referees, uh, uh, they, I mean, in years and eras that you can remember, you would remember Bruce Hood and, and uh, Bobby Myers and uh, linesmen like John D'Amico. And they were, I mean, they were permitted at that time to have their own personality. Andy Van Massen, or not Van Massen, no, Van Helden. Um, uh, those guys all had their own personality. When you put helmets on them and visors on them and dress them all the same and take their names off, I mean, they, they've accomplished their goal. Nobody knows who the referees are anymore. And uh, that's the way they want it. But there's no personality. I mean, there, there's no walking in and saying, uh, look, at this is how we're going to play tonight because Scott Radley's refereeing the game and we know what he'll let go and what he won't let go. It's just none of that happens anymore. It's all the same. I also do wonder, as we're talking about this, how much having two refs on the ice, and this is old now. I mean, they've been doing this for years. But having two refs on the ice matters as opposed to letting one guy, as you just talked about, do his thing and call the game the way he wants to. I, I, I really, I still wonder about that, that do, does one guy take a cue from another guy as opposed to just doing, calling what he would normally call if it had been a one ref system? I, I, we all, in the senior league, in the Allen Cup Hockey League, we only use one referee and uh, I'm a big fan of that, and that might have some influence on it. But the uh, because I want that guy to have a feel, but they miss things. The game is so fast now. Uh, there was a, a, a play a couple Friday nights ago, and the referee looked at me, and I shrugged my shoulders. I mean, um, our guy got run, our guy got up, knocked the other guy down, but the referee was bailing out. There was no way he could see what happened to Bonello, and he couldn't see it because he wasn't looking. He was going to get run over himself. So that's when you need two guys. The game is so fast. We can do it in Dundas because, uh, you know, the ice surface is smaller. And uh, But that's why you need two guys. The game is – I mean, they took the center red line out. You know, if you're at the goal line, I mean, the, the puck's in the other end in three seconds. It's impossible to do it properly. But it's also vanilla, right? There is There is no personality. I mean, some of the personalities in the old days uh, – uh, Bill Friday, Bill Friday. I mean, if the game was boring, Bill could put on a show himself. Yeah, no, he was the um, he was he, he he could do that. He was like uh, what's his name? Who was the baseball the umpire? Uh, Ron Luciano. Oh, Luciano. Ron Luciano. It was the same kind of idea that uh, yeah, you could do that once upon a time. So uh, I don't know if you watched any of the Buffalo Bills game yesterday. They were playing the New York Jets, and midway through the game, uh, Buffalo linebacker Matt Milano has a clear path to New New York's quarterback, a kid named Mike White. Um, And, I mean, he's probably got 15 yards of a full-on sprint and nobody touching him. And the quarterback was in the process of throwing, so he's extended. And Milano hits this kid in the ribs. And I tell you, he folded him. Like, it was, it, it looked like someone had taken a car and run into this guy. And he went down... And he was clearly in agony with some sort of rib injury or something. Well, after the game, Don, uh, and he got hit again later. But after the game, here's what Sports Illustrated's story about the game says. After suffering a significant rib injury Sunday, Jets quarterback Mike White is going to the hospital for precautionary measures, Coach Robert Sella told reporters after his team's loss to the Bills on Sunday. New York announced White suffered two rib injuries and the tests are for potential internal injuries. How in the world can you possibly allow a player who you later say is going to be sent to hospital for potential internal injuries, how can the NFL or its teams allow that guy to be back out on the field? Well, they it, it's, a, it's a pattern here, right? Uh, who was the wobbly guy there about Tua, a month ago? Tua, Tagovailoa. The guy got his bell rung and they sent him back out again. I mean, that you risk an injury. Now, some of that's the responsibility of the player. Like, if, you're, if you've are if got bad ribs and you can't breathe and laugh, I don't think going out and playing more football is a good idea. I mean, I'm no doctor, but... No, but boy. they have doctors, Don, and surely when you go to the dressing room, and I mean, good for the kid for being tough, I suppose, but 
if you've got a team doctor and you go to the dressing room, the kid has just essentially had a torpedo shot into his abdomen. And surely the doctors, if they press on your ribs and you can't do anything but like scream or something, like surely there was some sort of response. How do I, I just, I just don't know. I, I, I love the toughness of these guys, but if you're saying after the game that we have potential internal injuries, that just seems entirely wrong that he's out on the field. Well, and, and you're, you're right. They do have doctors and I wouldn't be surprised that almost every team has an x-ray machine in their locker room now for a home and away that the money that they spend to keep these guys healthy. Um, yeah, see, I've always lived and died by the, the, the process that so you can play hurt, but you can't play injured. And I respect the guys that play hurt, but there's, there's, there's a quantum leap between playing hurt and playing injured. And that's what you just talked about. Like the guy was clearly injured. It wasn't probably a bruise. Well, but... if it was Don, if it was, maybe it was a bruise. But at, as soon as the game ends, the story says that the team sends him off to the hospital for concern about internal injuries. And there was no hit on the last play of the game. So it's not like this happened at the very, very, very end. This is my point, is that if, you, if they had yeah. not sent him to hospital for some sort of concern about this, then fine. He was just banged up and he toughed it out. But somebody thought that he was injured enough that he needed to go to hospital to be checked, and yet it was okay for him to be on a football field where someone could have... Imagine for a second, and again, you know, we don't see the thing, but imagine that he had a, uh, something really wrong, and he was allowed to keep playing, and, you know, internal injuries are not a joke. He gets another no. big hit. You know, and he bursts his spleen or something. I mean, who knows what? I just, uh, as I say, the NFL continues to tell everybody, no, we're really concerned with player safety. And all the concern with player safety seems to be around concussions. And good for that, because we don't want to have players, you know, having applesauce for brains by the time they're 40. But if that's your only concern, what about stuff like this? Makes no sense. Yeah, I... They have to get a better handle on it, and oddly enough, the players really don't even care. I mean, they they don't want it to happen to them, but, you know, it's not top of mind. That's what players' associations are for, in my mind, to make sure and ensure the safety, because the players are far less concerned about it than everybody else is until it happens to their buddy or themselves, right? They just say, well, injuries, injuries are part of the game, and we've been able to learn to live with it. So I think the uh, the player associations are the ones that are going to have to, uh, you know, I- ensure the safety of the players. Yeah, no, I'm... Um, uh, so the, the, the report afterwards, so 24 hours after, now just to be clear, um, uh, where are we here? Ian Rappaport, NFL media, Ian Rappaport, says, uh, good news for Mike White, although we don't have a firm diagnosis, he was able to fly home with the team. So it sounds as though he doesn't have any kind of horrible, horrible thing. But to me, again, Don, that's not, that, that seems to be missing the point. If you're concerned enough that he might, he shouldn't be on the field. If you've got a hockey player who your concern has stopped a puck with his, I mean, if a guy on your team stopped a slap shot and he was wearing equipment that exposed his midsection, which some guys do, some guys have basically no padding on their abdomen. If a guy stops a puck and he is in agony and you're thinking, geez, that guy might have broken a rib. Are you going to put him back on the ice? Even if he says, I'm good, but he's, you're looking over and he's like, oh, I'm in agony here. Are you going to put him back on the ice? I very much doubt it. No, of course not. No, we're not at all. I just don't, I just don't understand. Either, either the NFL is going to throw up his hands and say, you know what, just, if they want to play, they play. Or they don't do that and they say, we're really concerned with player safety. And in cases like this, you have to say, we are relying on the people around the team to make the decision for the players because you know the players won't make the decision. That's the big one. You're right. The players will never well, make this decision. To me, it's kind of like um, uh, athletes want to take steroids and compete in the Olympics or in any sport. You know, you either let everything go 
and go do whatever you want. And, you know, if you want to take, you know, 50 needles a day to make sure you look like Hulk Hogan or the Hulk, uh, and you want to compete and you want to die when you're 38, then that's your choice. You know, I mean, the the problem is that sometimes the athletes have to accept responsibility. I mean, in our society today, nobody does. But, you know, everybody has to protect everybody else. It does seem foolhardy to you and I, because I think we're blessed with some common sense. But it's common sense is far less common than it used to be. Yeah, but you know as well as I do and every other athlete, they are not going to take themselves off the field unless they are in a coma, really. And so you have to have someone who is going to look out for them because the, the, the way the system is set up, if you leave the field, somebody could take your job. So you're almost never going to leave of your own volition. Yeah, but you know what? If, if your quarterback is hurting, if, for me, uh, on the bench, it's a pretty easy decision. I mean, I just look at the trick. Will this get worse if he keeps playing? Yes, we'll take him in the room. Because you have to look at the big picture. You can't look at that 15 minutes unless you're in overtime of a, of a championship game. But otherwise, you're going, let's look at the big picture here. You know, yeah. like, let's look down the road. Let's look what's going to – if we let him play, do we lose him for three weeks and we get 10 again? Do we lose him for the season? How big a deal is this game? And that perspective, I think, is sometimes lost. Shouldn't be, but is. And – the bills are hard to beat anyways. Yeah. And I mean, I, I get it. I, all those things I get, the season was kind of on the line for the jets. They got to win this game to keep up with the bills or get closer. And it's in the division and the game is pretty close at that point. All, I mean, everything was leaning towards, I understand, but if you're truly going to say that it's about player safety, it either is or it isn't anyway. Uh, we got to run. Don Robertson, we always love having you on. Uh, go. When are the Real McCoys playing this week? Uh, we're done till January. We have our Christmas break. We lost a date uh, due to scheduling, and now we're going to rest till January, and then we're really going to go hard. It's going to be fun. We will talk about it then. Don, thanks for doing this. All right. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. That is Don Robertson. He is here every Monday night. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.